On June 18, 1969, the attention of most Americans was riveted by events taking place 250,000 miles away. Two days earlier, Neil Armstrong, Mike Collins, and Buzz Aldrin boarded Apollo 11 and rocketed toward the moon. On the evening of June 18th, Armstrong and Aldrin crawled through the narrow passageway from Columbia into Eagle, the lunar lander, to do a systems check and send a television transmission back to Earth. A quarter million miles away, other preparations were taking place. Senator Ted Kennedy and his cousin, Joe Gargan, planned to race Kennedy's sailboat, the Victura, in the Edgartown Yacht Club regatta on the weekend of July 18th and 19th. Gargan rented a secluded cottage on Chappaquiddick Island off the coast of Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, and Kennedy was going to host a cookout for some of the people who had worked on his late brother Bobby's 1968 presidential campaign. The guests of honor were a group of women nicknamed the Boiler Room Girls because they worked in a windowless basement office in Kennedy's Washington campaign headquarters. The cookout began around 8.30 p.m. The Boiler Room Girls who attended were Rosemary Keough, Esther Newberg, sisters Nancy and Mary Ellen Lyons, Susan Tannenbaum, and Mary Jo Kopechny. The men at the party included Gargan and Kennedy and other members of his sailboat crew, as well as his chauffeur and a couple of other political cronies. The party on Chappaquiddick began to break up around 11.15, about the time the astronauts went to sleep. They had another big day coming. So did Ted Kennedy. Americans awoke the next day to hear that Apollo 11 was in lunar orbit. Aldrin and Armstrong crawled back into Eagle to make final preparations for their historic lunar landing the following day. 250,000 miles away, Americans learned of another drama that was being played out on a near deserted island off the coast of Massachusetts. The implications of this drama would have an impact on American history and politics that would come to rival even the drama on the moon. And even as the names of Collins and Aldrin and Armstrong would be forever linked, so would the names Ted Kennedy and Mary Jo Kopechny. So mix yourself another classic 60s cocktail, the Gibson, and listen to the story of a faithful night on Chappaquiddick. And when I returned, Mary Jo and the call were gone. Let's admit at the outset that only two people know what happened at Chappaquiddick, and neither of them can tell us today. One of those people was very famous. The youngest child in what at the time was the closest thing we had to American royalty. The sole surviving son of a star-crossed family. Edward Moore Kennedy, known to his family as Teddy and to everyone else as Ted, was only 37 years old in 1969. He was thrown out of college for cheating and in 1961, at just 30 years of age, 
he was elected to his brother's old Senate seat from Massachusetts. He saw his oldest brother killed in World War II. His next brother was gunned down in Dallas. And his last brother shot in a hotel kitchen in Los Angeles. He himself was almost killed in a plane crash in 1964 while campaigning for re-election. He was a troubled soul in a troubled marriage, and more often than not, he tried to drown his troubles in alcohol. His story is familiar to many. But who was Mary Jo Kopechny? In initial reports, she was referred to as a blonde, and that's all. Later, people assumed she was a party girl, but that wasn't who she was. It's time to set the record straight about the 28-year-old woman who attended that party on Chappaquiddick 51 years ago. She was born in northeastern Pennsylvania, the only child of an insurance salesman and his wife. When she was an infant, they moved to New Jersey. Devout Catholics, her parents sent Mary Jo to parochial schools. She graduated from college with a degree in business administration and immediately thereafter took a year to work for the Mission of St. Jude, a Catholic civil rights ministry in Montgomery, Alabama. She spent a year teaching typing and shorthand at Montgomery Catholic High School, and she was an advisor to the school newspaper. Her students remembered her as being tough but fun. Her passion was politics, and in 1963, she moved to Washington and joined Florida Senator George Smathers' staff as a secretary. A year later, she moved to Robert Kennedy's staff after he was elected to the Senate from New York. She was known as a hard, diligent worker. She started as a secretary to the speechwriters, then moved to a legal secretary position. She played catcher on the Kennedy office softball team. When Kennedy announced that he was running for president, Mary Jo joined the campaign staff. No longer just a secretary, she began to make substantive contributions to policy. She helped draft his announcement speech, and she became one of the boiler room girls. These six young women were responsible for tracking and gathering intelligence on delegates to the Democratic Convention. They also drafted and distributed press statements. They were specifically chosen because of their political savvy and their discretion and their willingness to work long, hard hours in a stress-filled environment. When Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in June, she was devastated and went home. But as her father said, politics was in her blood. In September, one of the nation's first independent consulting firms, Matt Reese & Associates, hired her to set up field operations and campaign offices for their clients. She worked on several campaigns in the fall of 1968 and the spring of 1969. One of the political professionals who worked with her on a Jersey City mayoral campaign characterized her as an exceptionally hardworking and skillful professional who knew her craft. Mary Jo's future beckoned, and it was bright. Then came the invitation to Chappaquiddick. Why invite the boiler room girls? Ted Kennedy was considering a run for the presidency in 1972, and perhaps he wanted to stay in contact with people who could be helpful to him. 
But there were six married older men at the party. Their wives were not invited. And the boiler room girls were all attractive, single girls in their 20. All of them were committed to Bobby Kennedy, though none of them really knew Teddy. Here's what we know for sure about that night and the next morning. About 11.15, Ted went to his chauffeur, George Crimmins, and asked for the keys to his car, an Oldsmobile Delta 88. This was strange, Crimmins said, because Kennedy rarely drove himself. He and Mary Jo got into the car and left. Mary Jo left her purse and keys at the party. We know that at 8 o'clock the next morning, a 15-year-old boy saw a submerged car in Puka Pond. He called the sheriff. At 8.45, a tow truck and scuba divers arrived, and they discovered Mary Jo's body in the back seat. By 9 a.m., they had pulled her out of the car. The license plate was registered to Edward M. Kennedy. At 9.45, Ted Kennedy walked into the Edgartown Police Station and asked if he could use the phone. At 10 a.m., he told the police about the accident and that he was driving the car. That's what we know for sure. For the rest, we're relying on Ted Kennedy's statements and a few other possible witnesses. The truth, well, it's as dark as the bottom of Puka Pond. According to Kennedy, Mary Jo wanted to leave the party and catch the ferry boat back to Edgartown, and he offered to drive her. Mary Jo didn't tell anyone that she was leaving with the senator, and he didn't tell anyone that he was leaving with her, and she left her purse and keys behind at the party. According to Kennedy, he left the party and drove straight to the ferry slip, but took a wrong turn on Cemetery Road and then another wrong turn on Dyke Road. Suddenly, the pond loomed in front of him. He swerved and hit his brakes, but it was too late. The car plunged off a small bridge, nose first into the pond, and then flipped over on its roof. If this timeline is correct, it couldn't have been any later than 11.45. But at 12.40 a.m., a sheriff's deputy was returning home after working at the Regatta Dance in Edgartown. He got off the ferry and started to drive to his house, and he saw a black four-door sedan with two adults in the front seat, driving slowly on Cemetery Road near Dyke Road. The car stopped, and Deputy Locke thought they might have been lost. He got out of the car to see if he could help. Suddenly, the driver threw the car into reverse and sped away on Dyke Road, spraying the deputy with gravel. The deputy said that he caught a glimpse of the license plate and that it contained the letter L and two sevens. Kennedy's license plate was L78-207. About a minute later, some of the other partygoers were in a Congo line on Cemetery Road. Deputy Locke asked if they needed a ride. They said no. This was corroborated by the guests who remembered the deputy stopping and asking them if they needed help, but they couldn't remember the time. 
They also saw a car on Cemetery Road, but they couldn't identify it. So, if Deputy Locke is correct, there is an hour discrepancy between his account and Kennedy's. If Deputy Locke is accurate, where were Ted Kennedy and Mary Jo Kopechny between 11.30 and 12.40? According to Kennedy, after the car plunged into the pond, he got out and called for Mary Jo. He looked for her, and he said that he called her name and then dove into the water seven or eight times in an attempt to rescue her, but couldn't open the door or the windows to the car. He said that he was in shock, that he hoped that she had gotten out of the car as he had, though he said he couldn't remember how he got out. So he walked back to the party some 15 minutes away. He said he didn't pass anyone and he didn't see any houses with lights on. A neighbor contradicts this, saying she was home that night with her lights on and that she had a phone and she was there all night. When he arrived back at the cookout, Kennedy quietly asked his cousin Joe Gargan and his friend Paul Markham to meet him. He told them what happened and they drove to the scene. Markham and Gargan tried to dive to the car and rescue Mary Joe, but the tidal currents prevented it. They finally gave up and drove to the ferry and stood by the slip talking about Kennedy's options. Gargan and Markham repeatedly told Kennedy that the accident had to be reported. Yeah, 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 I got it, I got it, Kennedy said. And then suddenly he jumped into the water and swam the 500 yards across the lake to Edgartown. Thinking that Kennedy was going to the police station to report the accident, Gargan and Markham went back to the cottage. Kennedy went to the hotel, showered, changed clothes, and about 2.30, he went downstairs and asked the clerk what time it was. The next morning, Gargan and Markham took the ferry to Edgartown and met Kennedy at his hotel at about 8 o'clock. They asked him if he had reported the accident, and he said he hadn't. He made several telephone calls at a phone booth outside the hotel, including one to his brother-in-law, Stephen Smith, who was married to his sister, Jean. Stephen Smith handled all of the Kennedy business and uh, legal interests. He was known as the family fixer. Kennedy also called his friend, the California Senator, John Tunney. At nine o'clock, while he was still on the phone, he heard that the car had been found and that Mary Jo's body had been recovered. He walked a few blocks to the police station, asked if he could use their phone and make some more phone calls. They led him into a private office where he was on the phone again. And then around 10 o'clock, he walked back out and admitted that he was the driver of the car that had been found on Chappaquiddick. The police took him to another room and he made a statement giving them his timeline and his version of the events. An officer wrote down the statement and read it back to him and Kennedy agreed that it was accurate, that that is what he had said but he never did sign the statement. The coroner ruled that Mary Jo died by drowning and after consulting with the sheriff, agreed that no autopsy was necessary. 
He did do a toxology report and determined that Mary Jo had a blood alcohol level of 0.09. For someone her height and weight, that meant she had probably consumed at least five alcoholic drinks in the hour before she died. So on the evening of June 20th, most Americans were gathered around television sets watching tensely as Neil Armstrong guided the almost fuel-depleted lunar lander to the surface of the moon. They heard him say, Houston, tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Then a few hours later, on that same night, a nation watched spellbound as Armstrong stepped off the lunar lander and said, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Well, not everyone was watching. In Hyannisport, Massachusetts, Ted Kennedy had summoned his brain trust. Men from his brother's presidential administration and from Bobby Kennedy's Senate campaigns. Members of his family were also there, and the meeting was chaired by his brother-in-law, Steve Smith. The group quickly determined that Kennedy would not be able to run for president in 1972. They feared that his political career might be over, and so they quickly decided that Kennedy should address the voters and get his story out. Ted Sorensen, President Kennedy's famed speechwriter, wrote a speech, and the televised address was scheduled for June 25th. June 25th was a busy day for Ted Kennedy. That morning in Edgartown, he was arraigned on a charge of leaving the scene of an accident where a bodily injury had occurred. He pled guilty and was sentenced to two years in jail, but the sentence was suspended. His driver's license was also later suspended for 16 months. Kennedy's speech that night garnered mixed reviews. He ended it by asking the people of Massachusetts to help him decide if he should resign from the Senate. The amount of telegrams and the number of people who asked him to resign was never released, but to the surprise of no one, he did not resign, and on July 31st returned to Washington for a session of the Senate. One person who was not impressed with Kennedy's speech was the district attorney. He requested that an inquest be held. And so, in January 1970, an inquest was held in Edgartown, and the judge took testimony from Kennedy and Gargan and others. He released his findings. The judge ruled that death probably occurred between 11.30 p.m. on July 18th and 1 a.m. on July 19th. The judge also found that Kennedy and Kopechny did not intend to return to Edgartown at that time, that Kennedy did not intend to drive to the ferry slip, and that his turn onto Dyke Road had been intentional. The judge also found that a speed of 20 miles an hour, as Kennedy testified to, operating the car as large as his Oldsmobile, would be at least negligent and possibly reckless. If Kennedy knew of this hazard, his operation of the vehicle constituted criminal conduct. The judge also ruled that earlier, on July 18th, 
He had driven over Chappaquiddick Road three times and over Dyke Road and Dyke Bridge twice. The judge also found that Kopechny had driven over Chappaquiddick Roads five times and over Dyke Road and Dyke Bridge twice. The judge concluded, I believe it probable that Kennedy knew of the hazard that lay ahead of him on Dyke Road, but that for some reason not apparent from the testimony. He failed to exercise due care as he approached the bridge. I therefore find there is probable cause to believe that Edward M. Kennedy operated his motor vehicle negligently and that such operation appears to have contributed to the death of Mary Jo Kopechny. A grand jury also investigated the accident, but no additional criminal charges other than leaving the scene of an accident were ever pressed against Ted Kennedy. The Kopechny's never filed a lawsuit saying that they did not want people to think they were after blood money. But they did receive over $140,000 from the Kennedy family and an additional $10,000 from the insurance company. But they never received an apology from Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy finally did run for president in 1980, but lost badly to President Jimmy Carter. He went on to serve seven terms in the United States Senate. He divorced and later remarried. He quit drinking, and by the time of his death from brain cancer, he was respected, but not always loved, as the Lion of the Senate. And Mary Jo Kopechny? She died in 1969 on the cusp of a career in politics. Would she have become a political consultant in her own right? A campaign manager? A candidate herself? We'll never know. That's the tragedy of it all. A life cut short. A life of possibilities unrealized. That's a sad one. Thank you, Dad. Well, I don't have a whole lot for fashion this week because uh, we've covered the 60s pretty extensively. And mm -hmm. the Kennedy, well, JFK, last or two weeks ago. Uh, Ted Kennedy had the classic Kennedy style, preppy-ish suits, nautical looks for casual attire, uh, meaning like polo shirts, shorts, boat shoes. Etc. Do you have anything to add about well, Ted Kennedy? I, not about Ted Kennedy per se, but I did just finish an, a book about JFK, his his younger years up through 1956, and you talked a lot about the Kennedy style. Mm -hmm. um, when he first started out, he was not necessarily a, a very careful dresser. It wasn't uncommon for him to go into the House of Representatives with one brown shoe and one black shoe and socks that didn't match and wrinkled clothes. Uh, it was really Jackie, after they got married in 1952, who uh, caused him to start paying more attention to his look. That's when he uh, began buying tailored suits, and she she actually laid his clothes out for him. Uh, and so the, the, the fashion plate, uh, Jack Kennedy... I uh, can really credit that to uh, to Jackie, his wife. I'm still working on my husband with that, but 
Just kidding, Jacob. Love you. Well, I also wanted to touch on Mary Jo and the Boiler Room Girls. They were young, attractive women, as Dad said. Uh, think shift dresses, pearls, classy 60s looks, uh, kind of similar to what we talked about in the Manson family episode with um, Sharon Tate, but a little more toned down and more of the everyday style. They had cute bobs, which reminds me of my new haircut. Doesn't it, Dad? That's right. You now you now have your own little I'm a boiler haircut. room girl. You are. <laughs> and uh, because they were in politics, they probably wore sweaters, slacks, skirts, etc. Mm-hmm. Is what I have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, 60s beachwear for women, there were... This reminds me of Marilyn's fashion that we talked about um high-waisted bikinis or one pieces that were ruched um yeah anything to add there not not a thing all right well let's talk about this one first of all why did you choose a gibson well, I, I, I wanted another, uh, another 60s Mad Men style cocktail. And uh, the Gibson is really just a gin martini, but instead of using uh, olives or lemon peel to garnish it, the Gibson uses uh, vinegared uh, cocktail onions, little bitty onions. Mm. So uh, the Gibson that we're going to make will have three uh, cocktail onions on the toothpick as garnish. And what I discovered is I was... Uh, doing some research on this, there evidently is some mythology that has developed about martinis um, as far as the olive or the or the cocktail onion. Evidently, having an even number of garnishments in a martini is bad luck. So you might find one olive in a martini or three, but usually not two or four. And if you do find two or four... Ask run for away. Another, ask for another <laughs> Yes. Make it an Dump odd it out. number. <laughs> yes. So that's that's why I chose the Gibson. Just another another 60s cocktail. I think we've done the Vesper. Yep. Um, well, this will be the Gibson. So it's going to be right. a straight gin martini uh, with the cocktail onion garnish. Mmm. I do love onions. I know. I'm gross. All right. Well, it's very clear that Mr. Edward Kennedy was being very shady during all of this wouldn't you say i think it's it's very obvious that uh this was not just a political meeting to try to round up some some people to work on a possible presidential campaign three years down the road Mm -hmm. six uh six married men well i guess five of them were married one wasn't uh and six attractive young single women on a cookout, on a deserted island, I think this was planned for something other than high-level political strategizing. I would agree, yes. Yes. But they don't really tease at that in the movie. I mean, they they tease at it, but it's not obvious. Right. Which I thought was interesting. Right. Probably respecting the family. Yeah, and we don't know what happened. right, right. We we have no idea what happened there, though I'm, I'm assuming... You know, there 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 were some extracurricular activities going on at some at some point, point. Right. and uh, there there was never any indication that Mary Jo Kopechny and Ted Kennedy had had anything going on before this. She had met him a few times, but didn't know him well. Now she had a uh, she 
she had a huge case of hero worship uh, on Bobby Kennedy, but again, mm-hmm. no no indication that there were was it ever any sexual relationship between any of them. But um, they, I, I, I'm sure that Ted went up to her and said something like, "Hey, let's get out of here for a while." And they took a ride, and who knows if anything else happened mm-hmm. on that ride. But uh, I, I don't think she asked to go back to the ferry to catch the boat to the hotel. Right, um, right. She left her purse. She left her keys there. Mm-hmm. She never told her friend she was leaving. So obviously yes. they just wanted some, some alone time. Mm-hmm. And there was drinking going on, and, and Ted was known to be a a, a big-time drinker. Unlike his unlike his brother Jack, who, who rarely drank, uh, we can't say the same about Ted. Right. I don't know if he got $1,000 from his father when he turned 21, but... Uh, if he did, I, I'm sure where a lot of that thousand dollars immediately went to to some liquor store in Boston. I think he did get that thousand dollars. Did we talk about what that means? Right. That the, the Joe, old Joe, promised each of his sons. Don't know about the daughters, but he promised each of the sons a thousand dollars if they would not uh, uh, smoke before their twenty-first birthday, and another thousand dollars if they did not drink alcohol. And we know for sure that Joe Jr. and Jack. Oh, then got maybe the money. Ted didn't. Okay. But uh, yeah, I, I'm going to assume he did. But <laughs> yeah, very funny. Where's my thousand? Well. Well. <laughs> you're not getting it. Let's just put it that Darn. way. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right, um, ladies. If you leave a place with anyone, tell your friends. So that they know where you might be. So just be safe and tell your friends where you're going or who you're leaving with. Mm-hmm. Just a good lesson for that. Okay. Well, he was also shady and well, everything about this is suspicious. Mm-hmm. So the car and Mary Jo's body were found before Ted even reported the accident. And when the police found out the car was registered to Ted... They found him having brunch. Hmm. Yeah, and, and in fact, when, when they talked to him and he said he was driving the car, the officer who initially talked to him was shocked that he even knew about it, that, that they had found the body already. But, uh, you know, of course, he, he did know about it. And, and he had already, even that night before and that morning before, he was already in damage control mode. I mean, the, the entire Kennedy political machine uh, had been alerted and was operating at, at this point. Mm-hmm. Yep. He said he was trying to drive Mary Jo to the ferry, took a wrong turn, went down dirt road, and then somehow drove his car off the small bridge into the water. But police officer Huck Look says he saw Kennedy, which we've already talked about, around 1240, which contradicts the reason that Kennedy said he was leaving because the ferry stopped running at midnight. So well, that's what you alluded to. We don't know what was happening between in that hour, but he couldn't have been going to the ferry. Right, and let, let's be honest. I mean, Luck did not ever see Ted Kennedy or Mary Jo Kopechny. He saw a dark car True. with a license plate that had some of the numbers. But, I mean, I think we all know it was Kennedy's car, and he was spotted, and he tried to get out of there and probably just was going a little too fast and drove it off the bridge. Right. Yes, I did see that some think maybe they were doing something in the car and he got spooked and, 
Yes, was driving too fast, so. Something like that certainly could have happened. Yes, yes. You know, I also find it interesting that uh, that when he got back to uh, the party or back to the cottage, uh, he never told any of the other boiler room girls that Mary Jo was missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mary Jo had never told any of them she was leaving with the senator as well. Uh, so again, he uh, he was trying to cover his tracks even even at that moment. I mean, when you come from a family of politics, I'm sure it's pretty second nature to cover up things that could get you and the family into trouble. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he was taught that. Yeah. So, sad, but I'm sure that's a thing for big, powerful families. Kennedy remembers, he says he remembers trying to get Mary Jo out of the car, but he doesn't remember how he got out of the, out of the car. And this is weird because car accident survivors usually remember all of the accident or none of the accident so it's kind of weird like trauma would either your brain would either react to trauma either you were like there super loose like you remember everything or you remember nothing so it's kind of weird that he only remembered bits and pieces mm-hmm. yeah so. i mean i i remember reading about jackie kennedy who of course saw her husband shot right next to her and she remembered every little detail mm-hmm. about it but then other people they don't remember anything I think he he remembers everything that happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's pretty clear because he immediately called his friends together and told them what had happened. And they testified to that. Gargan and Meacham both testified. Did they say what he told them or did he? Well, that never specifically came out, just that there was an accident. The car was in the water. He thought Mary Jo was in the car. He he tried to get her out but couldn't. Okay. Hmm. So, again... It took Ted 10 hours to report the accident. And when he was asked why, he said that he was in shock and needed to process what happened. He claimed that the next morning, it dawned on him that he needed to report it. However, he was told multiple times before that to report it by his cousin and his friends. In fact, they thought he was going to report yes. it. They, they thought that they had convinced him to report it and that he just dove in the... Uh, dove in the water and swam to Edgartown, and they said, we thought he was going to report it then. And they were surprised when they got to Edgartown the next morning, and he hadn't been. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think he was in shock trying to process it. He was already calling uh-huh. uh, Steve Smith and, uh, and the family and trying to circle the wagons and figure out exactly what to do. Because he, he knew that his political career hung in the balance mm-hmm. at that point. In the movie, he calls his father. Did he not really call his dad? Well, I don't know what his dad could have said to him. He said like a one word. His dad, his dad had had a, a terrible stroke back in 1962 and was not able to, to speak. They thought he understood, but he, he could not speak. He said, uh, let me look up. This would have been, I, I think Joe Kennedy died... Around this time. I think he died in 1969. Why don't you see okay. when he did? What did Joe Kennedy say to Ted in Chappaquiddick movie? It was something along the lines of, like, telling him to cover it up, but he just said, like, one word, and Ted was like, what did you say? He, he could what only... What say or something? He could use... In fact, that, my understanding is the only word that Joe Kennedy could say after that was no, after his stroke. Mm, so it wasn't I don't, historically accurate. Yeah. 
Well, if anyone remembers, let us know Put in the Facebook know. group. Yeah. Uh, when did Joseph the Senior die? He died November 18th of 69. Yeah, so I thought it was right around this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the movie, I believe he died during the movie, too. But I have to admit... I wasn't able to watch the whole thing before this. I did watch about the first half, so I don't totally... I've seen it before, but recently. Well, after he finally did report the accident, he didn't... He he did give a very vague statement, but he didn't follow up with more statements or answers. This upset a lot of his supporters. Uh, And like you said, he wasn't always loved. And I'm sure at this time he wasn't very respected by a lot of people. I think he disappointed a lot of Kennedy supporters, and he he did, he did. But I think at the you know after this accident, I think his primary hope was to somehow salvage his political career, mm-hmm. and uh, that's why they pulled everybody together. His statements were usually pretty consistent, and the cons- and they were consistent in "I don't remember, I don't mm-hmm. recall," which is a standard politician's yes. answer. About trying to salvage his political career, mm-hmm. what's the story about him infamously not being able to answer why he wanted to be president, and uh, when was that? That was in uh, 1980. Uh, he was running President Carter. Jimmy Carter, of course, was a Democratic president, and he decided to challenge him. He thought that Carter was too conservative. And uh, kind of kicked off his campaign with an interview on 60 Minutes with Roger Mudd. And uh, Mudd asked him a lot of questions about Chappaquiddick, which, again, were just kind of the same thing. I, I feel terrible about it. I don't remember. But then he said, why, why do you want to be president? And he just stumbled around for about a minute with a lot of uhs and ums mm-hmm. uh, and never really gave a coherent answer. On, on why on what he wanted to accomplish as president. Uh oh. And so that from that point on that's known as the question. Did you get the question? I remember one of my favorite T V shows is The West Wing mm-hmm. and um, on one episode the the people in the West Wing were ecstatic because one of the President Bartlett's would be challengers pulled a Ted Kennedy and on, on national T V. <laughs> Did he, he got the question last night. Oh, my oh, gosh. what did they say? And they read this long, <laughs> incoherent answer, and people are dancing in the West Wing because That's he funny. got the question. Right. And then finally somebody said, well, wait a minute. Do we have an answer? <laughs> That's funny. If we get it. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Very similar to what happened, frankly, with President Trump about uh, two or three months ago when someone asked him, what he wanted to accomplish in his second term. Mm-hmm. And he didn't really have an answer, just kind of rambled on about nothing. So if you ever go into politics... Have an answer. Have an answer. <laughs> Why do you want this position? Even any job interview, that's a, that's one you don't think you'll have... Like, it, you don't think you'd have to answer that because obviously you want it. But it's like, oh, crap. Why do I yes. want it? Think about it in advance. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Speaking of the supporters, um, some of their questions and the questions from the media were, why was Ted out with a single, attractive 28-year-old woman when he's married with children? And was he drinking and driving because he was a drinker, Uh as was commonly known? 
And a lot of people think that's why he didn't report it right mm-hmm. away. He needed time to sober up and get the alcohol out of his system. That's what I think. That's personally. what I think, too. Yes. But I I have some things other people think that we'll get to. Um, something I thought was funny, and they did depict this in the movie, Ted showed up to Mary Jo's funeral in a neck brace four days after the incident. Ah, the famous neck brace. Yes. It looked pretty fake. And a reporter said that Ted was moving, like craning his neck around to look places, and which you can't, you can't do if your neck hurts and it's in the neck brace. Mm-hmm. Uh, people had seen him without it before this, and Ted left funeral immediately uh, without saying anything after it was over. Well, you know, any good lawyer in a personal injury case, you're going to have your client in a neck brace. <laughs> right. Uh, hopefully, though, you can coach them once you're in the brace. Don't try to move the neck. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I think the neck brace was a prop. Uh-huh. Um, clearly, it was a prop to indicate, you know, yeah, I was really in an accident and I really was hurt. Right. Um, but, you know, this was also the guy who then swam 500 yards in cold water uh, to get back to his hotel. Right. And... Yeah, that was well known as well. So, was it? It was, right? Yes. That was in a statement. Yes. Yeah, okay. Just want to make sure it didn't come out later. Um, do, I think due to the disappointment and just not really getting clear answers, pressure was on the police to do something about this. Um, the court contacted Ted about making a deal, and the Kennedys had a doctor diagnose him with a concussion and shock and. Um, but that wasn't, so why did they do that to try and give him a lesser sentence? Is that why they diagnosed him with that stuff? Yeah, because there were so many questions. How could you not remember any of these things? Well, because I was in shock, Your Honor. Right. I I have a brain injury and that's, that's why I'm, if I've given contradictory statements, that's why. I mean, clearly this was Massachusetts and, uh, in the sixties, the Kennedys still ran that state, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of political pressure. We know we've got to do something, so let's let him plead to this leaving the scene of an accident. That's the only thing we know for sure that happened. Let's get it done very quickly. It amazed me, as someone who's practiced law, that uh, this thing the the accident happened on the eighteenth, I believe, uh-huh. of, of June. And one July. week, July, and then one week later, on July 25th, he's in court, he's pleading guilty, and he's sentenced, and the thing is over. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe that happens in Massachusetts, but uh, I've <laughs> never been in a case like that. Right. Even a minor case, it's usually months to get it resolved, not, not one week after a fatal accident. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of political pressure. Let's get this thing out of the way quickly. We don't want it to drag out into any any other election campaigns it's ended right and to clarify i think that you said in your story june 25th it was july, july. 25th yes july so clear that up. so yes yeah, so a week after the accident july 25th he pled guilty to leaving the scene of an accident and his punishment was the two-month suspended jail sentence what does mm-hmm. a suspended sentence mean it means you don't have to go to jail, and as long as you don't commit any other crimes during that two-month period... You don't have to go? You don't have to go. What? Oh, that's a fairly common thing. Oh. So that's what you want to be convicted with, then? Yeah, you want to get a suspended sentence, and that's what they called in some states. In Kansas, they would call it uh, 
They call it probation. probation. Okay, that's it's what the I same mean. thing. If you you get you get your sentence, and if you meet all the criteria and you don't get in trouble, then you're done. Okay, I see. Well, because of this, now that I know it's probation, that makes more sense. Um, the official word was that Ted was being taken care of by the DA and the judge. Mm-hmm. Pretty clear. So. Sure, it was. Yeah. And that shouldn't surprise anyone. Mm-hmm. All right. As you mentioned in the story, in January 1970, an inquest was held to gather facts about the incident. And this, I pulled this uh, passage from the article, The Kennedy Machine Buried What Really Happened, Revisiting Chappaquiddick 50 Years Later by Josh Sanburn for Vanity Fair, and it was written on July 17, 2019. The inquest, which was conducted in secret, found probable cause that Kennedy negligently operated his vehicle, contributing to Kopechny's death, but the district attorney declined to press charges. A grand jury convened several months later, but wasn't able to view evidence from the inquest. An autopsy was never conducted. Later, the Kopechny family reportedly received almost $150,000 from Kennedy's insurance and from him personally. In the movie, um, Kennedy did call Kopechny's parents, mm-hmm. like shortly after. Mm-hmm. Did that happen? That we know I don't. Of? I don't know. They they did interview the Kopechny's years later, and they talked about getting the money. They talked about some members of the Kennedy family contacting them, but they did pointedly say we never received an apology from Senator Kennedy. And I don't think he did apologize in the movie. He just told them what happened that she passed away so hmm i don't like that i don't like when people don't give apologies when they're supposed to quickly though not quickly but i want to talk about how there was no autopsy because it was suggested that she suffocated instead of drowned which Uh makes a lot of sense um because if you are in a car when it goes in the Uh water and you don't open the window and get out of there you're mm-hmm. stuck in an air air bubble, and then you mm-hmm. suffocate. Right, I've I've read that too. In fact, the position of her body, I think they said, was such that uh, it was pressed. The, the car was upside down, and she was pressed against the roof of the car, which is where an air bubble or an air pocket would have formed, mm-hmm. and that you know she certainly may have suffocated rather than drowned. Now, some people have said that you know she was she could have been in there for hours and. If they could have gotten to her, they could have saved her. And I've heard other people say, well, maybe not, because the water was so cold, she may have died mm. from hypothermia as well. But we, you're right, we don't know the cause of death. The death certificate said drowning. The coroner's inquest said drowning. And I think that was probably a likely... Uh, I mean, I, I can understand how that happens. You find somebody in a car that's been submerged underwater all night. I think a lot of people, well, she drowned. But if there had been an autopsy, if there had been a more thorough investigation, they may have set that rumor to rest one way or the other. What difference would it have made to perform an autopsy? Would it have just taken longer? Like, why Why would they not have done that? I think. Well, I think the sheriff just, I think the coroner asked the sheriff, do you think we need an autopsy? And the sheriff reportedly said, no, it's a drowning. I don't see any need to do that. Sheriff is not a doctor. No. Well, the coroner is. I mean, the coroner could have pressed it, but the coroner didn't either. Ugh. 
Um, oh my gosh! They did. They did try to exhume the body later mm-hmm. uh, when they when I think it was either the grand jury, or the inquest, uh, made a motion to exhume the body, and Kennedy's attorneys and and Kopechny's family fought that, and so the body was never exhumed. Hmm. The family fought that mm-hmm. to not have it done. Right. They they okay. didn't want. They didn't want their daughter's body to be dug up. So. Hmm. Um, another, I forgot to mention, another argument for her suffocating was part parts of the roof and trunk were found to be dry. Right. That's yeah. what that's, you know, and as I said, supposedly her body was kind of right, upside sorry. down yes. pressed against that, that roof as if that's where the air was. And she just slowly suffocated, which would have been a terrible way to die. Okay, so there are some theories as to other stories of what may have happened. So there's Ted's story with the edits. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to, I mean, it's pretty clear to me they weren't going to the ferry. So, mm-hmm. but part the part of his story where he was driving and then what dad and I spec- speculated, he got spooked and was driving fast and went off into the water. That's an option. Mm-hmm. I kind of think that's the most likely. And I think he had alcohol in his system and that's also why he got spooked. Um, the second one is interesting. Mary Jo was driving. Mm-hmm. Something I read is that I can't remember exactly how they put it, but it could make sense that she was driving, and because when the car flipped into the water, she would have flown to the passenger side. Mm-hmm. And she was found on the passenger side. Whereas if she were on the passenger side, she would have been found on the driver's side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's something. I'm surprised somebody hasn't hired an accident reconstruction uh, expert and, and uh, right put together a, a TV special about this. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's just too old news for them to do that now. Maybe. Well, yeah. when we get famous, they'll do there it. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the third one is perhaps the most interesting. Uh, maybe Ted wasn't in the car at all. This would explain how he got out and she didn't. Mm-hmm. Because how how was he so quickly able to get out and she wasn't? Mm-hmm. Which I don't even know that. What do you think? How do you think he got out? Do you think he just opened his window and she didn't? That's, I, I don't know. It could be. Um, I, I don't think you could open the door at that point. No. If you'd open the door, that would have destroyed the air pocket and everything else. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Because I watched a video about this, about how you need to get out of a car and how long you have. It's like really fast. I think it's like 30 se- You have like 30 seconds to so if you're in the car and you have your family in the car and you go in the water, you say immediately open your windows because you have to do it before the car is completely mm. underwater. So you have like 30 seconds or less. Everyone's got to roll down the windows and get out because if you get stuck and don't roll down the windows and that's where like the really sad 911 calls come from because they didn't open the windows. So the operator basically just stays on the phone with them like till they die basically because mm. can't do anything. Mm. So he, if he was in the car, which he probably <laughs> probably was, he had to have opened his window and she didn't. Mm-hmm. And she just couldn't get out of his window? I don't know. Maybe. 
Yeah. Which then might which then might lend more credence to the drowning story than the true than true. The suffocation. If the windows open, mm-hmm. she probably would have probably did drown. Yeah. True. That's a good point. Um. So back to Ted wasn't in the car. Uh. Maybe he panicked when and if the policeman saw his car. He got out, told Mary Jo to drive herself, and then she drove into the water. Mm-hmm. If Mary Jo were the... Oh, this is... I did write that down. Um, like I said, if Mary Jo were the passenger, gravity would have sent her to the driver's side. But she was found on the passenger side, so... But then I'm thinking, if the car tumbled this way, she would have just gone further mm-hmm. in the pass, And I'm twirling to the left. She would have gone further into the passenger side, mm-hmm. so I don't think that makes sense. I mean, this is one of those things we'll probably just never know. Right, right. Um, Um, If Ted wasn't in the car, this could explain his laissez-faire attitude about the whole thing and his lack of reporting. Uh, But then you might wonder, well, why did he plead guilty? By pleading guilty, even if he wasn't in the car, he was able to avoid a much more serious investigation that would have gone into everything that went on that night, which he may not have wanted everyone to know. That's true. And it could. Exp- I was thinking about this while you were doing your story when you said they never received an apology. Mm-hmm. Maybe his subconscious is like, you didn't do anything because you weren't there. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Now, there is one other theory here that, uh, you know, I've heard hmm. that I think I, I don't attach any credence to. But, you know, since it's the Kennedys. Yes. And since we just had the Marilyn Monroe theory and how she was murdered, mm-hmm. that... Uh, there's a theory out there that some people have tried to push that Mary Jo Kopechny, uh had had an affair with with, uh, with Kennedy, that she was pregnant, and that Kennedy and some of his friends actually took her out, murdered her, probably suffocated her, and then put her in the car and con- concocted this, this whole thing. And that's why they fought the autopsy and the exhumation, because that would have proven that she was pregnant. That seems rather silly to me because I'm sure that probably wasn't the only, even if it is the case. And there's no indication that Mary Jo Kopechny was pregnant or that she was this kind of a girl or whatever. But I think they could have solved this with money, not uh, yes. not resorting to murder. But of course, since it's a Kennedy, murder has to, has to uh, come in somewhere. Murder so and outlandish conspiracy. So that's out there too. Yes, well... I think it's Ted's story with the modifications. Mm-hmm. Is that what you think? Yeah. Yeah. With H- him not of... being in the car is interesting, but yeah, I don't know. Or her driving. And uh, I also read this. Maybe she was driving because he was too drunk and he asked her to drive. Or maybe he they switched places when the cops saw them. Yeah. Any of those things yeah. could have happened. happened. Well, also because it's the Kennedys, of course... This story has been suppressed many times. Mm-hmm. Like books and movies have been canceled, and um, and Chappaquiddick, the blockbuster movie, didn't mm-hmm. come out until twenty seventeen. Ted was gone, mm-hmm. so yes, yeah, they didn't want this out. Yeah, and uh, I think they did. I think the movie did a nice job of not bad mouthing the the Kennedy more than he did himself, right? By right. his behavior. Right, and and they didn't, uh, they didn't portray Mary Jo Kopechny in any bad light. No, if I recall, I saw the movie a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so we've talked, we've mentioned the movie many times. It's a 2017 movie starring Jason Clark as Ted Kennedy and Kate Mara. Finally got her name right. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Mary Jo Kopechny, and Ed Helms from one of my favorites, The Office, played George Gargan, and Bruce Dern played Joseph Kennedy Sr. Mm-hmm. The legendary Bruce Dern mm-hmm. played the legendary Joseph Kennedy. Uh, we've pretty much given our thoughts on the film. and I think so. We don't know if it's accurate, because we don't know. <laughs> but I enjoyed it. I think it's a good yeah. movie. It's on Netflix, if you haven't seen it. Yeah. And lastly... Do you believe in the Kennedy curse? Oh, my. Well, he actually mentioned, Ted actually mentioned this in his speech. Mm. As he's talking about how he doesn't remember anything and the thoughts running through his mind. And at some point he said, and I began to wonder, is there really a curse on the Kennedy family? Man, you know, I don't know. I mean, it is, uh, it is, it is weird that, um, Three of the four sons were, you know, met their met their end early in life. Of course, I mean there was a war going on, so you know that's right. not that. Uh, presidents, yeah, and then the the oldest daughter, the second oldest daughter, Kick, uh, she was killed in a plane crash uh, in World War II. The oldest daughter, Rosemary, uh, was born with a mental disability, and uh, Joe Senior. Uh, had a lobotomy performed on her, which just pretty much destroyed her, left her left her with the mental capability of a four-year-old. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Ted's plane crash in 64, which almost killed him. Uh, some of the second generation have, have been killed, Jeez. too. So I don't know if it's a curse or not. I know when I was growing up, of course, in the conservative religious environment I was in, which was also very Republican, you know, there was uh, there were constantly. Well, of course, it's a curse because Joe Kennedy, uh, senior, uh, made all of his money in bootlegging, <laughs> which isn't true. But right. that was that was the explanation I heard that uh, Joe Kennedy was a bootlegger and and was uh, supplying the country with booze, and so God has been punishing him from generation to generation. Hmm. Or maybe. One of them sold their souls yes. to the devil or to the Illuminati. Who knows? Who knows? It's pretty weird that Who that knows? many of them met an untimely death. Yeah. Yeah. We will never know. We'll never know. But we are done with the Kennedys, aren't we? We are. Let us know uh, on the Facebook group if you think there is a Kennedy curse. I'll put up a poll and we will see your guys' thoughts. Yes, this has been our three-part series on the Kennedys. It's been a lot of fun. Did you enjoy it, Dad? I did. I did. What's our story next week? <laughs> In Kansas? Oh, um. we are going. We are we are going to come home to Kansas next week, and talk about. In cold blood. Dun dun dun. The the Clutter family murders in Holcomb, Kansas. How far is Holcomb from us in Olathe? Holcomb's out in the, I believe it's out in the southwest so far. corner of Kansas, so it's it's probably six or seven hours away. Oh, wow. All right. Well, that'll be fun. It will be. See you next week. So, and if you want to get a little update or a little uh, advance uh, peek, I'm sure you can find uh, the In Cold Blood uh, murder, or film. It was a mm-hmm. great film in the 60s. 
And then there's also the Truman Capote film with Philip Seymour Hoffman, which uh, focuses a lot on the uh, on the Clutter family murder. So do your homework. Do, All your, right. do your homework. All right. See you next week. <laughs> see you next week. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. Join our VIP Facebook group to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive videos and content. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There is a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Kate Mays. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.